Uh, the reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 73, verses 1 through 17. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark. Morning, Redemption. How are you? Hey, uh, Cody and everybody else and Josh, thanks for leading us this morning. I really appreciate you guys. And uh, uh, Redemption Arcadia, you just need to know how blessed we are to have such uh, gifted and talented leaders to take us through all that stuff and help us sing and all that stuff. And uh, I uh, just want to make sure that we understand how blessed we are. Um, my name is Frank. If you're new here, welcome. We're glad that you are here. We're kind of new here, too. <laughs> it's our second Sunday in this space. A uh, couple things uh, before we get into Psalm 73 that I want to mention. Please, if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 73. If you have a phone with an app on it, turn to Psalm 73. It'll be really helpful for you to follow along today if you have that in front of you. Uh, we've been in the Psalms all summer, except for last Sunday. We're back in them uh, now doing selected psalms. Uh, a couple things, though. This is the last sermon you're going to ever hear from me as a person who is not a father-in-law. So uh, next Saturday, this coming Saturday, I'm going to be in northeast Iowa at Village Creek Bible Camp uh, officiating the wedding of our youngest daughter. Um, she's sort of beat uh, our oldest daughter to the marriage thing. I don't know how any of that works out. But anyway, uh, she's getting married. Many of you know her. Many of you have met Joey, her fiancé. They've been here uh, this summer, really excited about that. They're getting married there because that's where they met five years ago, became very good friends and started working together there, and one thing led to another, and now I have to do a wedding in Iowa. So um, it's funny because uh, I've been really blessed this year. Um, I've been invited by Arcadia people. Uh, in May, I got to do a wedding at, at a place called Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. It was absolutely beautiful. Anybody ever been there before? It's fantastic. Yeah, that's why it's beautiful. Nobody's there. So, <clears throat> And then in June, it, just really suffering for Jesus, I went to Carmel to do a wedding. So uh, really hard. Anyway, and now Northeast Iowa. I don't know how any of those fit together, but that's uh, kind of the... That's the first thing. Second thing, some of you hopefully have noticed, um, and judging by the way inventory has gone, you have, which is good news. Um, we have a benefactor in this church who keeps us in good ESV hardcover Bibles that we put in the windowsills back there. We don't put them under the chairs because when the chairs get moved, the Bibles fall out and they start to 
uh, get damaged. So if you need an ESV Bible, that's our gift through our benefactor to you. So please grab one of those Bibles if you want one. We have a whole other box of them uh, in case you're wondering. So please grab a Bible if you need one. And we are uh, really fortunate and just love the fact that, that uh, there's somebody who feels called to do that ministry for us. Uh, and then the last thing I want to mention is um, we've talked about this new property for a year now and the fact that we have increased our size in everything on this property, children's space, office space, uh, and parking lot space, but we did not increase the size of the sanctuary. The sanctuary got a little bit smaller, and we knew that that might be one of our challenges as we moved in. And the discussion was had early on, should we start with three services? And the decision was made by the elders to wait, move in, get settled in, understand the patterns of the property, understand the patterns of the people in the neighborhood, and then try to make a decision about whether or not to move to three services, and if we do add a third service, when will that be? We are now starting to have that conversation. We think it probably would be a good idea. We don't know for sure yet, but probably would be a good idea to add a third service either in October or January. That, those are kind of the two windows if we do it that we're looking at. And what we need your help on is just to pray that we would be guided with wisdom by the Holy Spirit to understand what would be best. And what we're looking at, of course, is a Friday, uh, I'm sorry, a Saturday night service, like around five, uh, or maybe three Sunday morning services or adding a Sunday night service. So we don't know what that'll look like, but just pray uh, that we would be led with uh, wisdom in that regard. So, um, that's for some of you who are kind of like, golly, it feels a little tight in here. Although our oldest daughter said, I like that it feels tight in there now. It's more intimate now. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. Let's do Psalm 73, all right? So Psalm 73 is a lament psalm and it's a wisdom psalm. The two are combined. As a lament psalm, Psalm 73 is considered by some as the most popular or the most well-known lament psalm. I would say certainly it's in the top three. And we're doing all three of them this summer. We already did, Tyler did Psalm 22. That's a big one. That's also a messianic psalm. Uh, this is a lament psalm, a very famous one. And then not necessarily maybe the most famous, but the harshest lament psalm is Psalm 137. We're going to do that on August 14th. And if you've never read Psalm 137, it'll shock you. And you should be here on August 14th to hear what we have to say about that, the historical context and the theology of it. But Psalm 73 is one that's probably the most famous, and, and I think the reason is because there isn't a single person, I believe, uh, who has ever read Psalm 73 and who hasn't said, I've experienced some measure of what Asaph, the author, is going through in this. So Asaph is the author of this psalm. He authored 12 of the psalms that we find uh, in the book of Psalms, and historically, Asaph was uh, King David's worship leader. So he was a songwriter, he was an artist, he was a musician, um, and, and uh, he teamed up with David to do some really great things. But as you'll see here, he's also a, a pretty practical, practical theologian. Lots of application from this psalm today, but also stuff that I think will hit us right in uh, the gut. Uh, C. John Collins, who is an expert in the psalms, writes this about Psalm 73. He says, this is a wisdom psalm. It's also a lament, but he says, it's also a wisdom psalm, helping those who pray and sing it to rest content even when unbelievers seem to get along without a care in the world so that the faithful, out of envy and anguish, are tempted to join them. 
Their help, the, the faithful's help, comes from taking to heart the realization of where the different life paths of the faithful and the unbeliever are headed. Each is going toward either salvation and nearness to God or toward judgment and separation from God. And this realization comes in the sanctuary of God, namely in corporate worship. And I'm going to have a lot to say about that later, and you'll see that there's something else uh, that, that I think Collins misses there um, and doesn't bring up there. But nevertheless, he says this is a wisdom psalm. Uh, and, and, and I know some people, okay, so wisdom and knowledge, you, you look at the Bible and you see that uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, but it's also the beginning of knowledge, it's also the beginning of insight, it's, all the be- it's, it's also the beginning of discernment. What is the difference between the two? Is there a difference between wisdom and knowledge? And the answer is yes, there's a huge difference between the two. Uh, knowledge is one thing, but wisdom is the practical application of what you do know. So you can have somebody who has lots of knowledge. They've been to a lot of schools, and they have, lots, they have facts at their fingertips, and they can tell you this and that and the other thing. They're really good at jeopardy, okay? But, but, but their life is a mess because they have no wisdom. They have no understanding of how to apply what they know. Then you have other people, quite often, who have very little schooling. They don't have a lot of facts in their minds, they can't snap their fingers and come up with exactly what, is, what, it, what, it, what they know, but they seem to get along well in life because they have wisdom. They understand people. They understand how to apply what they do know. Uh, this basic, very basic understanding of the difference between wisdom and knowledge has always helped me. Knowledge is knowing that although a tomato seems to act like a vegetable and we use it as a vegetable, knowledge is knowing for a fact that a tomato is really a fruit. It's a fruit. It's not a vegetable. Wisdom is knowing that you never put a tomato in a fruit salad. Amen? (laughs) See, that's the difference between the two. So now you understand that. And the reason this is a wisdom psalm is is very simple right here. And you get it in verse 1 and then verses 2 and 3. When our life experience does not match what we know to be true about God, it causes problems. Amen? We are vexed. We are confounded. We are angry. We are in pain. And we are confused. And so here's the big idea for today's psalm. It's pretty snappy, too. Okay? Are you ready? Here you go. What we see is not what will be. What we see is not what will be. So let's go through the psalm, and then I want to end with a major point of, of, of application. so uh, Verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now that just sounds like it, like it makes sense, right? If, if Israel is God's chosen people, they're his people, and if you're good, good in heart, God's going to be good to you. That, that's the idea. In general, even non-believers believe this. This is a worldly common sense idea that good is always returned in life for good and that evil is always punished by life. That's the way it's supposed to work out. Uh, I, years ago, in the 70s and early 80s, I sold shoes. I sold women's shoes on commission. It was actually a great job. I, I got exercise and I made a lot of money. It was really cool. And I worked at the Baker Shoe Store in Christown Mall, back when it was called Christown and they had a Baker Shoe Store. It was the highest volume bakers in Arizona. Uh, it was a lot of fun to work at, 25 or 30 employees. And my best friend in that store and eventually outside of the store as well, we became good friends outside of the store as well. Neither of us Christians at the time was a guy named Nick Martinez, and he and I were full-time salespeople uh, together, and just, it was so much fun. 
He really believes it. He wasn't a Christian, doesn't believe in God, but he really believed this. And it even came out in the way he would sell shoes to people. So a woman would walk in, she'd pick up a display shoe, and she'd say to Nick, do you have this in a size 7? Now, how many of you have ever been shoe shopping, and there's that moment of tension when you send the person back to get the shoes? Do they have my size? I really hope so. I've been looking for these shoes for a long time. I hope they have my size. I hope they don't have to call another store. Oh, I forgot. Most of you shop on the internet. I understand that. Okay, but anyway, this is the way it used to work, okay? So there's that tension. And Nick would do this all the time. He would bring out the shoes in a size 7, and he would present them to the customer as if he was presenting them a $300 meal. Like, like this, is just, this is gold. And he would, he would look her right in the eye, and he would say, you must just live right. In other words, you're a good person, so we had the shoes in the back. Fate or the universe or the cosmos or what Oprah, it just arranged it so that the shoes were back there for you. See, people believe in this, in this motto, as Collins calls it. Collins calls verse 1 a motto. People believe in this motto even if they don't believe in God. This is just the way life is supposed to work. But tension comes when the motto doesn't appear to be true. For instance, when our life experience contradicts the truth. This motto must therefore be properly understood, and that's what Psalm 73 is about. The person who holds a shallow understanding of this model will naturally become envious when the wicked prosper and may even conclude that godliness is a lie, so why should I even bother to pursue godliness? So look at verses 2 and 3. Surely God is good to Israel, but then boom. But as for me, as for my experience, as for the way things are going for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Aren't we a lot like this psalmist? Sure we are. We're a lot like Asaph. We know the truth of verse 1, yet when we see what happens in life, when we see injustice, when we feel like we've been sinned against in some way, when things aren't fair, when there are inequities, we retreat from the truth. We begin to push away from God. We start to question. When life experience contradicts what we know about God, it causes doubt and pain and anger. And, and we wrestle with that. And sometimes we just push away. But here's one irony about this psalm that it teaches. So this is application very early, and I want you to listen to this. This is really important. I'm going to spend some time here. The prosperity of the wicked is not what's going to hurt us, but our envy and jealousy of their prosperity will. That's what will hurt us. There's the irony. Their wealth doesn't hurt us, but the fact that we don't have it. The real problem is not that the wicked prosper. The real problem is, is that we're bothered by it and we wish it were us. And we're willing to even consider or start doing what the wicked are doing in order to prosper. And that's where the problem comes. The problem is always about people and our attitudes, not about inanimate, amoral objects as wealth and money are. We need to understand that. What is the most misquoted verse in the Bible? Now, I, I will tell you that I think, personally, 
the most misunderstood verse in the Bible is Matthew 7.1, where Jesus says, judge not lest you will be judged. I think that's the most misunderstood verse there is. I, I, anytime I, I mention something about somebody's sin, it's very often that that's the Bible verse they'll quote to me. Ah, judge not lest you be. In other words, here you go. Here's what they're saying. Shut up. Don't tell me what I'm doing wrong. You have no right to judge me. Okay, well, you need to read on in the chapter so that you have a full understanding of what Jesus is actually saying there, okay? And there's a little bit of that, by the way, in this psalm. What's the most misquoted verse in the Bible? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's 1 Timothy 6.10. I hear this all the time. Well, the Bible says money is the root of all evil. No, it doesn't. The Bible doesn't say that. I, was, I like blue bloods. Anybody like blue bloods? I got this thing, like Tom Selleck and I, we identify with each other. But, so I'm watching blue bloods, and Jamie's supervising sergeant on an episode a couple weeks ago as a rerun, but he walks up to Jamie, and they're talking, and he goes, well, you know what the Bible says, Jamie? He says, he says money is the root of all evil, and Jamie goes, you're exactly right, Sarge. No, you're both wrong, clunk. You know, no, you're wrong. It says... The love of money is a root of all... Who's the problem, money or us? We're the problem. It's always us. The, the, the problem is not that the wicked prosper. Again, I've been saying this a lot lately because <laughs> it does line up with my experience. And, and uh, I've heard it from other people as well. You and I really believe as people that all of our problems would be solved if just two things would happen. And here they are. We really believe this. If just two things would happen... Number one, if we had a lot of money, and number two, if everybody else did what they were supposed to, all of our life problems would be solved. In other words, if we were rich and we were in control of everybody else, all of our problems would be solved. Well, probably a lot of, yeah, amen, I get a big amen. Yeah, probably a lot of your problems would be solved if that happened. But is that going to happen? No, of course it isn't. So we need wisdom. We got we to gotta figure out something else. By the way, I, I, I'm going to hang on this for a second. Here's how deep-seated and ingrained this worldview is in, in, in our lives. <clears throat> Again, uh, another illustration for you. Uh, I was actually alive when, when Forrest Gump, the movie Forrest Gump, came out in the theaters. How many... In, most of you have probably seen it on video. Okay, well, I was alive when it came out and was in the theater. This is a great movie, a fun movie, great storytelling, Tom Hanks. I mean, it was just a lot of fun to watch, okay? Two weeks after it came out and Jackie and I saw it, I'm having coffee with a very strong Christian, good friend of mine. In fact, he, attends East Valley, he, he attended East Valley Bible Church at the time. So he's attending Tom Schrader's church, okay? And I'm having coffee with him, and he brings this up, not me. And I am not exaggerating how angry he was about this movie. He said, what about this movie, Forrest Gump? And I said, I thought it was a really good movie. I really enjoyed it. He said, how could you say that? It was so stupid, and it made me so angry. I mean, the guy's just walking down the street, and a feather falls on him. I mean, how does that happen, anybody? I mean, he grabs a, a T-shirt, and he wipes his face. Next thing you know, millions of dollars are coming in. Have a nice day. Come on. I work so hard. I slave so hard. Nothing like that's ever happened to me. That's verse 1. I'm a good person. I should have all the feathers and the, and the have a nice days coming my way. He was really angry about this. I never had coffee with him again. It was just, it was, it was unbelievable. But I also understand it. I understand why we feel so cheated. John Currid uh, wrote a book 
great little book called Why Do I Suffer? And he writes this about Psalm 73. From a human perspective, it appears that God is good to the unbeliever and often seems that he is even better to them than to the Christian. This really seems unjust. How could God be sovereign over that inequality? Well, what we see is not what will be. Now look at verses 4 through 7. The psalmist now spends uh, all the way through verse 15 now describing the, um, the prosperity of the unrighteous and describing specifically these wicked people. He says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In ancient times, it was a sign of prosperity, comfort, and wealth if you were fat. Uh, now it's a sign of prosperity and comfort, supposedly, if you have a gym uh, membership. So times have changed a little bit. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. And here you go. Now we start to find out how they got prosperous. And violence covers them as a, as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Now, verse 5 says they don't have any, the wicked don't have any troubles. Well, how do we know that they don't have any troubles? How do we know that? Truth is, we really don't. We really don't. The problem is that it's our perception. We're just looking at the outside of things and have no understanding of what's really going on in the inside. Here's the problem. For you and I, the grass is always greener somewhere else. This is the human condition that I've found. Four things. Generally speaking, people think they would be happier if they were someone else, if they lived somewhere else, if their work was doing something else, and if they were hanging around different people. If they could change those four things, life would be good. Do you ever notice that? We're just, it's just constantly, the grass is always greener. Here you go. This is going to shock some of you, at least it did in the first service, okay? According to longitudinal uh, research studies that have taken place over decades now, now understand what I'm saying here. This is not a survey of 131 freshmen at Arizona State University. These are serious, longitudinal, scientific studies over years and years and years in marriage, and here's what they've determined. On average, anybody who is married right now, you walk up to them and ask them, and if they know that nobody's going to hear their response, 70% of married people, if given the opportunity to get married again, would not marry their current spouse. Seven out of ten people would ditch the spouse they have now and go somewhere else. You know why? Because the grass is always greener. That's why. You are always looking. Wow, look at her. I wish my wife could be more like her. Wow, look, look at him. Look at the money he's making. I wish my husband could figure out how to make money like him. And then what happens to many people is they go ahead and they do it. They go, I'm going I'm to improve my life. I'm going to get a divorce. And then they move on and they get married again. And look what happens. They find out that they're the problem, not everybody else. That's what they find out. The grass is always, here you go. Let me put it another way. I know we're in Arcadia, so none of you ever eat fast food. But you'll get the illustration, okay? I, I get that, all right? How, how many of you have ever been served a fast food meal that looks anything like the picture that they have in there? See, the grass is always, reality never seems to match up to what we think. 
Some of you know who Howard Hughes was. Again, I was alive when he was alive. Many of you were not. But Howard Hughes was wealthy beyond any of our wildest dreams. He had everything that we are told would fulfill us and make us happy, and yet he lived and then died as a lonely, angry recluse. His wealth did not help him. His wealth did not build character. Have you noticed that money doesn't necessarily build character? Do you know that the lack of money also doesn't build character? What builds character? God. God working in us through our life circumstances. That's what builds character. Now, there are wealthy people who, like this psalmist says, are arrogant, sickeningly boastful, oppressive, and violent. And there are also those who are wealthy, who are isolated, angry, and lonely. Both are dysfunctional. That's not what God planned. That's not what God had in mind. They're both dysfunctional. Are there wealthy people who are humble and generous and godly and doing God's work? Of course there are. Are are there impoverished people who live with great joy and gratitude? Certainly there are. It is not the wealth or the lack of it. It is the Lord our God that builds character. And then look at verse 7. Verse 7 should be read with a conjunction in the middle, with with the word but in the middle. Their eyes swell out through fatness. In other words, they live the good life, but their hearts overflow with follies. See, what we see on the outside is not indicative of the truth that's on the inside. In other words, the, the unrighteous, prosperous are eventually doomed due to their lack of true wisdom which can only come from that which they reject, rejecting God. Big idea. What we see is not what will be. And then look at verses 8 through 15. Look at verses 8 through 15. They, the uh, wicked, prosperous, scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people, God's people, Turn back to them, the uh, wicked, prosperous, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your God's children." Now, this is really important to notice in this psalm. Asaph, in the midst of this psalm, is doing two things. Number one, he's doing what is a sin in our culture today. He's judging the unrighteous. You hear that? He's going right at them. He's saying they are filled with sin, and he's boldly judging. You know, in our world, we can't boldly judge sin. We're told that judgmentalism is the greatest sin, but he's going right at it. But he's also doing something else in this psalm. He's confessing his own sin. He's not just pointing out the sin in others. He's also digging into his own heart and saying, I have sin here too, and I need to rid my heart of my sin. So it's a very holistic approach to righteousness. And by the way, if you read past Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and see what else Jesus says, you will find out that that's what Jesus is saying. When we point out the sin in others, we need to also be confessing and finding the sin in our own life as well. He never tells us to quit judging sin. That is a lie. That is a lie. He just says that as you do it, you need to make sure that you're dealing with your own sin as well. And again, 
He's saying having wealth and stuff doesn't make a person wicked, but how they got that wealth might make them wicked. That's what he's driving at. That's what this lament is about, the injustice, the abuse of their power and their oppression, their violence. And then furthermore, verse 11 is squarely connected to what we just saw in verse 7, the prosperous unbelievers' folly, their foolishness. Verse 11 is the greatest folly. It's the belief that somehow God doesn't know about the unbeliever's sin, pride, and mocking about their violence and injustice. But there's another folly that this psalmist is pointing out here, the foolishness of when you and I are envious of the fool and his folly. When we look at the fool, when we look at the unrighteous, prosperous person and decide we want to do exactly what he or she is doing and we want to be like him or her, that is also foolishness. That is a folly greater than the folly of acquiring wealth in the ways that they have. But then look at verses 16 and 17. The whole psalm turns on these two verses here. But when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Can I get an amen there? When we look at these injustices in the world, when we look at the injustices perpetrated against us individually, don't we get weary? Don't we get tired of asking, how long, O Lord, how long? It is a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. I was... I was given comfort and hope by going into the sanctuary of God. In other words, truth and reality will always eventually trump feelings and perception. And truth, and, and frankly, the, the constant refrain of Scripture is that the wicked may prosper now. They're going to have their day in the sun now. But ultimately, what happens to them in the end? I had a friend for a number of years who eventually moved to um, Oklahoma, and, and he and I would go around and we'd hang out together and everything. And whenever we saw something that we thought was wrong or we didn't like, and there was nothing we could do about it, our motto was kind of this. Well, what does it matter in the eternal scheme of things? It doesn't matter in, in the end. It's sort of a variation on Tom Schrader's comment that no matter how bad it gets, it can only last a lifetime. Now, I know when you first hear that, it's like, I don't know whether to be sad or happy, and I think it's a combination of both. But it's true, no matter how bad it gets, in God's economy, it can only last a lifetime. It's Psalm 49, 16 through 17, specifically in this idea of economics. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. What we see is not what will be. And where is this truth discerned? It's discerned in the sanctuary of God. And I, and I said I was going to comment on this. Here's, here's the deal. When, when he says this was discerned in the sanctuary of God, there's actually two meanings here. It, it's like a double entendre. There's two levels of understanding here. And, and um, uh, uh, the first quote talked about one of those meanings. But I want to make sure we understand the other meaning. One of the sanctuaries is the sanctuary that you and I have individually when we are with God in his presence. It's when you and I go to God alone. We don't need to be in a church to be able to do this. We can be in the midst of God's presence, in other words, his sanctuary, anywhere. We can be praying to God. We can be confessing our sin to God. We can be reading and studying his word. We are in the sanctuary of God when we are doing that, regardless of the building that we're in or the community that we are with. 
So that's one level of the sanctuary of God. I've got to go to God to understand these things. But second of all, you also gain understanding by being with God's people in the faith community in church on Sunday morning or Saturday night. This is one of the biggest reasons why we all need to be at the weekly gathering of the faith community. Because good stuff happens here. We worship, we praise, we serve, and we hear and we learn and are reminded of the truth of God and his word. And the best part of it is that every week we are reminded that we are saved by grace through God's son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross for us and then was raised to newness of life. And I, and I know the flinch because I've been doing this a while. Some of you may not say it out loud. You won't say it out loud, but maybe in your heart you'll say, well, that sounds a bit self-serving. He's the lead pastor. Of course he wants us here every week. Here you go. Here's, here's a really helpful concept that all of us could learn, especially, again, in our culture today. Just because something is self-serving or even offensive to us, it does not mean that it is untrue. Again, about three and a half years ago, I was called up by a woman that I've, I've known not well, but I've known for a while. She attends another church. She said, I want, to have, I want to have coffee with you, and I want to talk to you about Redemption Church's position on sexual ethics, uh, because we believe that we have a very biblical and godly position on sexual ethics, and, and we're kind of known for that in the community. She said, I want to talk to you about it, and I was like, there's no other pastor available for you. <laughs> All right. So we met. And I'm, I'm taking her through. She said, help me try to understand. I'm taking her through this. And, of course, the first thing I went to was not Romans 1, but I went to Genesis 1. That's where it all begins. And I went there. And here's what she said. She said, that offends me, and so it can't be true. That offends me, and so it can't be true. That's the culture that we live in. We're, we're told that if something offends us, it, it can't possibly be true. It, there's going to be a rude awakening there for people who live with that kind of ethic, okay? And again, I just mentioned this. I know the flinch. You're going, really? Somebody said that to you? That sounds kind of stupid, okay? I, I used to think this when I would go to Schrader's Bible studies. He would tell these stories, and i go, he's exaggerating. He's lying. That didn't really happen. And then I became a pastor. <laughs> People do this stuff. And then, of course, I start thinking, well, what have I done that was stupid? And my wife told me a lot of stuff. <laughs> All right, 18 through 28, he wraps it up here. Truly, you, God, have set them, the unrighteous wicked, in, wicked, in slippery places. You make them fa fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am constantly with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to your glory. You will save me. This is really interesting to me. You look at verse uh, 23, and it says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. And we begin to think again that it's all about us pulling uh, ourselves up and doing the right thing. But then read on. You, God, hold my right hand. You, guide me in your counsel. You, afterward, will receive me to glory. It's about God. God saves sinners. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. 
I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all of your works. Verse 19 is really interesting because it says, in a moment you will vanquish them. And it just goes along with how quickly it seems that things happen to us. We look at stuff happening and we go, wow, that was fast. That, that happened out of nowhere. That happened overnight. That just boom, it was one way and then boom, it was another way. But the truth of it is, is that most seeds get planted far in advance of anything ever happening. I, I don't know if you've ever read um, any Malcolm Gladwell fans in here. I love Malcolm. He's like one of my favorite authors. So um, the book, The Tipping Point. So again, in 1964, when the Beatles made their first appearance on Ed Sullivan, I was alive for that. And I was cognizant. I knew what was going on. Okay, and I knew it wasn't right. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I was there for the Beatles' debut on the Ed Sullivan Show. They had finally come to America. And I remember all the conversations. Where did they come from? They came out of nowhere. That just happened. How did that just happen? Boom, there are the Beatles. Well, if you know anything about the history of the Beatles, you also know that prior to the Ed Sullivan Show, they spent 10 years toiling in obscurity, working their faces off in horrible, dingy little nightclubs in Europe six nights a week, giving everything that they had and eating dirt. It took them, Gladwell calls it the 10,000-hour rule. Bill Gates suffers from this too, okay? People are like, yeah, Bill Gates was in his garage one day. Boom, Microsoft. That's not exactly how it happened, okay? This guy gave his life to computers. Every spare moment he had, he was working on computers. If you and I ever devoted our lives to something the way Bill Gates would, boom, stuff like that would happen for us too. But it takes time and it takes a lot of work. I have a good friend here in the, in the, in the valley. He's a businessman. He's been hard at it for decades. And just recently, in the last three years, things have really started to pop for him. So he's in his, he's in his 50s, and like things are really good. He, he, was always, he was always okay, just not really great. And I was having coffee with him uh, a couple months ago, and he said, you know, it's really funny. It took me 30 years to become an overnight success. It took him 30 years of trial and error before he finally figured it out. Takes time. Stuff takes time. And that's true for the downfall, too. When things go bad... You understand, that doesn't just happen. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. The seeds are planted, but it may take years to manifest. And when it does, we marvel about how fast it came and how it came out of nowhere. Just take infidelity, for instance. I think it would be rare to, to meet somebody who wakes up one morning and just goes, today I'm going to cheat on my spouse. Instead, it starts, what? Innocently enough. There's a second look in the hallway at work. And then there's a group lunch where you sit next to each other. And then pretty soon you're having coffee at off hours together alone. And then there's the drink at happy hour to discuss the client list. One thing leads to another. And then when the infidelity is found out, what happens? Everybody says, well, it just happened. I didn't intend for it. It just, it just happened. Like they caught a cold. I just caught a cold. No, it didn't just happen. You've been nurturing and nursing this thing for years. It doesn't just happen. And, and the psalmist is saying that. In a, it'll seem like in a moment that wicked will, will have their demise, but really they've been sowing these seeds for years and years and years. Here's the truth about life that we need to hear. If you and I are not purposefully moving towards something, you and I will drift towards something else. And what we drift toward is usually something that we don't want. And when we get there, we'll wonder how we got there. And then you look at verses 23 and 24. 
Here's the psalmist saying, I shook my fist at you. I called you every name in the book. I cursed you, God. And yet, you grabbed my hand and you guided me with your wisdom and you saved me. Anybody in this room who has ever had guilt or regret about what you have said to God or thought about God or shaking your fist at God and you felt bad about that, okay, feel bad, but you need to understand God can handle it and he still loves you, and so you really don't have to feel bad. He can take it. That's what his grace is about. It's not your performance. It's his love. It's not your performance. It is his love. And then verses 25 and 26, the key to the whole thing. This entire psalm, in fact, the entire disposition of life for that matter, all points to these two verses, and it's the gospel. We have nothing but Jesus. We fail, and he rescues. We mess things up, and he lifts us up, and he restores us, and he disciplines us, and he loves us, and he gives us his grace, and in the end, God is enough. Recently, I was talking to somebody who, who had a, a really great life wealth-wise and then lost everything, and And she said this. She said, you never really understand that God is all you need until God is all you have. And in the end, God is enough. And it's a really interesting wordplay in this psalm, too, that I love. Verse 18, Asaph says that God puts the wicked in slippery places and eventually they fall. That's funny because in verse 2, Asaph talked about how he had put himself in a slippery place, and he had almost stumbled because of his envy about the unrighteous uh, uh, prosperous. And yet Asaph has a saving grace. What is it? It's verse 23, God's saving hand. God reaches out with his grace-filled hand and grabs us and saves us. This is the only distinction of true relevance in the universe right here. Distinctions that you and I place so much of an emphasis on, so much importance on, things like wealth and race and education, do not survive this life. It's not that they're not important, but sometimes we place way too much importance on them. And so you may say, well, so we just await for the glory of the new Jerusalem? No. As ambassadors of Christ, we are called to work against and try to solve injustices in this world. We are to pray. We are to lament. We are to work against these forces, yes. But we also need to remember that our hope and our peace and our comfort comes in the new Jerusalem when none of this, none of this will matter. Everything is healed. What we see is not what will be. And if we buy into this world and we buy into the prosperity of the wicked and we begin to think that that's what we ought to do, we ought to, we ought to go after that, we need to understand that that's a mirage. That is a complete mirage. What we see is not what will be. It's like diving into a pool of water and coming out with a mouthful of sand. So here you go. Psalm 73 is a good lesson in helping us to deal with something that's called dogmatic wisdom. Dogmatic wisdom. Dogmatic wisdom is the way that most of us believe life should operate, that good people prosper in life and that wicked people are punished by life. Dogmatic wisdom is what we are all thinking when we ask the question, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Dogmatic wisdom is what we're thinking when we say life isn't fair. Dogmatic wisdom is what we are thinking when we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Dogmatic wisdom says that's not right. 
Psalm 73 starts with a very strong dogmatic wisdom worldview, but it ends with a true wisdom worldview. And that true wisdom worldview is that God is sovereign, He controls everything, He does what He decides. And it often doesn't line up with what we think is right or equitable. And his timing often doesn't line up with our timing. But he is God and we are not. And one of the challenges of, direct, uh, of dogmatic wisdom is that quite often love, life does operate this way. That the good are rewarded and the evil are punished. It does operate that way sometimes. But when it doesn't operate that way, and very often it doesn't, we're angry and we're vexed and we're indignant and we're confused. Even Jesus knew and knows that this is a challenge for us. I think it's why we have John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3 in the Bible. Listen to this and see if this doesn't line up. John chapter 9. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That is a clear dogmatic wisdom question. There's, he's blind. He must have done something wrong, or at least his parents did. Something bad happened, and, and it's because he's evil or his parents are evil. But look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the true answer, the, the true wisdom answer and worldview. You see, the problem with dogmatic wisdom is that it denies both the unpredictability of God, amen, and the sovereignty of God, both of those things. And we get into trouble when we deny both of those things. And yet, even as we see injustice, even as we see that life experience contradicts what we know to be true, we are called to lament. That's why we have these psalms. We are called to lament, we are called to cry out, we are called to complain, and we are called by the power of Christ to go and do something, especially now, especially now. Another problem that we have is, is that we think we have a right to know everything, and that's then compounded by the fact that many of us think that if we have a question for God, he better answer it. I have a right to have my questions answered by God. Well, if you think that way, you really need to read the book of Job. Because a lot of really bad stuff happened to Job, and he was a very good and holy and devout person. A lot of really bad things happened to him. And in the end, God came to him and said, hey, Job. And Job said what? He said, God, I have a bunch of questions for you. What did God say? He said, well, put on your, uh, your protective athletic wear, Job, because before you ask me any questions, I've got some questions for you. And then God just starts in on him. And at the end, Job's going, ah, never mind, I don't have any questions for you. We, you need to read Job. You see, in his sovereignty, God reminds us that we're the mortals and he's supreme. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all of the words of his law. Finally, let me say this. Dogmatic wisdom is really confused by the cross of Jesus. Think about it. Perfection and holiness gets executed. That flies in the face of dogmatic wisdom. And yet, that story was not over with the cross. It ended with true wisdom. Three days later, the resurrection. Jesus starts with dogmatic wisdom. He ends with true wisdom. God wins. And life comes. 
And Psalm 73, really, if you look at the way it goes, it looks just like Jesus. Jesus comes from heaven, he descends and is executed, and then he's raised. And you and I are raised by Christ's resurrection as well. That's true wisdom. Jonathan Edwards, the great um, uh, preacher from hundreds of years ago, does a great job in summarizing it this way. The way to heaven is ascending. We must be content to travel uphill, though it be hard and tiresome and contrary to the natural bias of our flesh. We should follow Christ. The path he traveled was the right way to heaven. We should take up our cross and follow him in meekness and lowliness of heart, obedience and charity, diligence to do good, and patience under affliction. What we see is not what will be. Let's pray together and we'll time, have our time of reflection. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you that in the midst of our experiences contradicting your truth and in the midst of us and our anguish over injustices and inequities and inequalities, all of those things, God, you are still true and you call us to cry out and you call us to lament and you call us to shake our fist and then you call us into your sanctuary. Lord God, we are so thankful that you do that for us. You, you, you take our hands, you guide us with your wisdom, you lead us into your sanctuary, and you save us. Your glory will be our glory. God, thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.